Well, in 1984, a scientist and a billionaire partnered up to start a project uh, that one professor called the most significant scientific project of all time. ABC News suggested it might save the world. The New York Times described it as one of the strangest experiments in the history of science. The founders of the project, uh, one of them brought the expertise. His name was John P. Allen, a systems ecologist. And the other one brought the money. The $150 million of funding came from philanthropist Ed Bass. And they called the project Biosphere 2. A biosphere is an enclosure, an airtight enclosure that is isolated from everything on the outside. And the idea is that life should be able to thrive in this closed environment. There is only other one uh, biosphere that we know of, and that is planet Earth, which is why the second one that they built was called Biosphere 2. Construction of a three-acre glass and steel-framed airtight enclosure was completed in 1991 at the foothills of the Catalina Mountains in Arizona. The compound housed a mini rainforest, a desert, um, a little ocean with coral reef. Um, it had 3,800 uh, 3, species of plants and animals. 3,800 species of plants and animals, including pygmy goats, dwarf pigs, tilapia, fish, hummingbirds to pollinate the crops, and three species of beneficial cockroaches to recycle organic matter. What could possibly go wrong? Well, the idea was to test whether humans could um, survive and thrive in an environment uh, in a place that was isolated from the rest of the world in the case of uh, potential worldwide nuclear fallout. Remember, this was the, the 80s and 90s where that was on everybody's mind. Um, also, it could be used to uh, establish colonies on the moon and even maybe one day Mars, if this proved possible, that you could grow all of your plants and all of the animals and everything can live in this ecosystem, that you would produce your own oxygen and scrub your own carbon dioxide, all within this airtight enclosure. And if people could just live normal lives in the biosphere, then it wouldn't matter what was happening around them and the rest of the world. It wouldn't matter if there was nuclear fallout or if there was a pandemic or if there was uh, some sort of radiation or something that was killing off the planet. As long as you were in your biosphere, you'd be safe, which is why you could even live on the moon. So on September 26, 1991, four men and four women waved to the cameras as they were sealed into the biosphere and uh, the doors were airlocked and they would remain in there for exactly two years. The micropopulation would work and play and celebrate. They would farm and do experiments. They would conduct business. They would party. They would resolve conflict. Basically, they would just live their normal lives, oblivious to what was happening in their immediate surroundings. Management of the project would look in on them from time to time and make sure that everybody was okay. And uh, if something went drastically wrong, management could step in to save their lives if necessary. But basically, management's policy was just to keep hands off and let them live their normal lives and just watch them from afar to see this snapshot of normality. Well, some things went very well in the, in the experiment. They, they were very productive. They produced enough crops, um, more than a, a productive country would be able to. Um, some things went poorly and unexpected. 
Now, I'll, I'll tell you a little bit more about the outcome of the experiment later today and throughout the series. Um, but let's just say for now that the cockroaches turned out not to be such a great idea. Not so beneficial after all. But what I liked about this concept of a biosphere and having this little micro-population living sealed off from everything else is that you could really get a sense of normality in a small community, just getting on with normal life, sticking to the rules that had been set for them as best as possible, and that they would just get on with their responsibilities, and that they were doing it for a higher purpose, in, in their case, for science, despite an uncertain outcome. They didn't even know what the future held for them or whether this would be successful. And that's really how Christians live in this world, isn't it? The church is a little bit of a biosphere, spiritually speaking. It's a place that you can come into where it's safe, where you can kind of let your guard down, where you, you know that the, the people around you love you and the teaching that you're hearing is there to edify you and keep you healthy. But sometimes what's happening around us can feel quite chaotic when you're not in the church, when you're at school or at work or just reading the news or just out there. It, it, sometimes it feels like the wo world may be falling apart and you can't wait to be back in your little biosphere of, of believers. Well, this is exactly what we see played out in the life and times of the book of Ruth. So turn your Bibles with me to the days that the judges ruled Israel, this time the book of Ruth. It's the eighth book in the Bible, uh, nestled between Judges and 1 Samuel. Commentator Daniel Block calls this one of the most delightful literary compositions of the ancient world. We don't know much about the author. We don't know who the author is. Some people think it may be Samuel or uh, the, the same person that wrote the book of Samuel, should I say, um, as a compendium to the book of Judges to provide insight into the line of David. Now, the narrator, um, Daniel Block says, the narrator is a master at painting word pictures and he uses all of these different techniques to produce a moving work of art. The book of Ruth really is a work of art, and we're going to get to study it over the next few to several weeks, depending on how deep we get into it. Um, today, we're just going to familiarize ourselves with the book, uh, with the, the place, the period, and the people. So let me read for you the first few verses of the book of Ruth. And in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. And they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. And they went into the country of Moab, and they remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives, the name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. So that's the dark backdrop uh, on which the rest of the canvas will be painted. We will look at all of that in more depth in weeks to come. But first, I want us to look at the place. We're going to look at the place, the period, and the people. And firstly, here we see the place. And all of these things, the place, the period in which it happened, and the people are significant to the themes of the narrator. The writer of the book um, has multiple themes, 
And the main ones are the theme of emptiness to fullness. Uh, also, the kinsman redeemer, something we'll learn about in some depth, and the sovereignty of God in all things. If you wanted to take one major theme, I would vote for that one. The sovereignty of God in all things. Even when everything around you is, is going haywire, you can still trust in the sovereignty of God. So the place. Let's look first at the place. Verse 1 tells us, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So that's the land of Israel, the promised land, Canaan. Um, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah. Bethlehem is the town. Judah is the, the tribe, the, the territory. Uh, went to sojourn or to emigrate to the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons. So the main point you, you just need to realize from that introductory verse is that this is not fiction. This is not a fairy tale. This is not a story that happened a long, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. This is fact. This is history. This happened in the days that the judges ruled Israel. And this happened in a particular town, in a particular tribe, in particular countries. And so it's important for you to realize that because often when we're reading in the Bible, we're reading about these spectacular events that really take a lot of faith to believe that they're even possible, like the parting of the Red Sea and manna coming from heaven to feed the people and the visions and the miracles. But the book of Ruth is not like that. This happens in that same place and in that same time, but these people are not exposed to those miraculous events. So we're introduced to this town, the town of Bethlehem. At this point in the Bible, nobody knows anything about Bethlehem. So don't think, ooh, Bethlehem. No, this is just, it's a town called the House of Bread, which is ironic, as we will see, because there's no bread in the House of Bread. Every Hebrew student usually starts off with Ruth, because the Hebrew is very easy. And in the very first verse, as you're translating Hebrew for the very first time, it's very exciting that you can see that you're learning enough Hebrew to translate the Bible, except that you get to this word that says house of bread, and you're like, I don't understand. Why is there a house of bread? What's happening? Until you realize, no, it's Bethlehem. Okay. Um, but we will learn later from the prophet Micah that Bethlehem was a very, very small town, an insignificant town with great expectations. And then from the New Testament, we learn it was a very important town in, in the grand scheme of things. But for now, it's just a little town. We're also introduced to uh, the land of Moab. So what you need to know about Bethlehem, it's near Jerusalem. It's in the heart of Israel. It's just up the road from the capital of Israel. Uh, Moab, I was just there a few weeks ago. I'd never been before. And the most significant thing you learn about Moab is that it's not Israel. That's all you need to know about it. It's not Israel. To get there, you've got to, you've got to cross a border. You've got to show your passport. It's a big deal. And in those days, same thing. Moab is not Israel. It is on the east side of the Jordan and the Dead Sea, uh, which means, remember, the Jordan is what Joshua and the Israelites crossed to come into the Promised Land. So if you have an Israelite in the Promised Land and he's going to Moab, what's he doing? He's exodusing. <laughs> you know, he's going out of the land that... God gave him. That becomes significant. So the place is important that it happens here. Elimelech should know better than leaving Israel. And we're going to look at that in a lot of depth next week in a, a sermon that I will call Immigrating to Tragedy. Now, why did Elimelech leave Israel? Well, that brings us to our second point, the period. So we move from the place to the time period. Verse 1 tells us the period. It's in the days... When the judges ruled. 
Now, if you have not been coming to our evening service, I highly commend to you that you go online and you listen to those because it's been quite a ride for us so far. Um, But we have titled the evening series of Book of Judges, Desperate Times. Because what what happens in desperate times? What do they call for? Desperate measures. That's right. And so the people in the times of the judges were doing desperate things. Things that were not in line with the will of God. And we see Elimelech do the same thing. He is desperate about something. Desperate about the lack of food. He's looking after the life of his family. And so he takes his wife and his sons and he immigrates. And he leaves the promised land out of sheer desperation thinking that maybe that's the right thing to do because at least he will save the lives of his family. So remember placing yourself in the canon. Remember what's happened here. So God calls Abraham. He has 12 sons. They turn into the 12 tribes of Israel. Joseph ends up in uh, Egypt because of the, you know, technicolor dream code thing. And then his Brothers all end up there as well because, you know, you meant it for evil, I meant it for good. We've got all the grain because they had a vision that no one else had. And so now we're rich and I'm second in command. Okay, so then they're all there. Then they, you know, they multiply. um, And then there's a pharaoh that knew Joseph not and they become slaves. Then they, 400 years, they're slaves. Then they come out of Egypt through the Exodus, through the Red Sea. And they wander, well, they get right up to the promised land. Uh, Canaan, which we now call Israel and Palestine, and, and they get right up to there. But then the spies, uh, except for Joshua and Caleb, who are 40 years old, bear that in mind, if, don't worry. Um, Joshua and Caleb, everyone else gives a bad report. And so God lets that generation of faithless people who came out of Egypt, he wants them all to die off. But he can't just wipe them all out because then there'll be no Israelites. He needs them to have babies that can become the next generation So that's why they wander around the wilderness for 40 years. They just wander around the wilderness 40 years, eating manna, having babies. And so anyone born in the wilderness doesn't know the slavery of Egypt. All they know is the power of God in providing for them. So that when they enter into the promised land, they will be a faithful generation, not a faithless generation. And the only two that are allowed in are the two spies that gave the good report, Joshua and Caleb, who at that point would be 85 years old. Okay, so you got two 85-year-olds and a whole bunch of whippersnappers, and they all come into the land, and then Joshua, they, they take the land that takes you know, a little roughly seven-ish years um, to, to start that off, and God will drive out the inhabitants slowly over time. But after that, Joshua, he's eventually 110, I think, and then he dies. And when he dies, so you've had Moses in charge, then you had Joshua in charge. When Joshua and Caleb die, there's no one in charge. And so the book of Judges is what's next after Joshua. It's the, the, the nation of Israel was just kind of ruling itself. Like there, there, is no, there is no management. And so the way it says it in the book of Judges is that there was no what in Israel? There was no king in Israel. That's repeated four times in the book. And everyone did what was what? right in their own eyes, which at university you will learn is called uh, postmodernism. So just relativism, if it's right for you, that's good. If you believe it, that's fine. I don't have to believe it. We can all have contradicting truths and they're all right. Okay, that was the book of Judges. So people weren't reading their Bibles. There was no king who was in charge of making sure everybody was keeping the law. Everyone was just doing what they thought was right. And so you have a lot of people doing things that are really really bad in the book of Judges. So don't read the book of Judges looking for examples of what to do right. 
You read the book of Judges to see examples of what to do wrong. That's what people are like when there's no one ruling them and they're all doing what they think is right rather than what God says. Okay, that's the book of Judges. That's the period that this happens in. And when you're reading the book of Judges, things get so bad, it's this downward spiral. Things get worse and worse and worse until, you know, we're about to head into Jephthah in the evening service where things really start getting bad. And then you meet Samson, who's just a disaster. And it just gets bad until eventually they're cutting people up. It's gross. But anyway, um, at the end of the book of Judges, you kind of feel, was there nobody who knew Yahweh anymore? Was there no one who knew? Even the heroes, the judges themselves, these, these men uh, and Deborah, the woman that was raised up by God to lead the nation of Israel and deliver them from their enemies, they are sleeping with prostitutes, they're killing their daughters, they're, uh, I mean, they, they don't know what they're doing. They're lying, they're, um, they're disobeying God, they're, it's just a complete mess. And you sort of think, these are the heroes, and they're, I mean, Gideon doesn't even believe God when God calls him to, to do what he does. That's what the sign of the fleece is about. It's a show of doubt. And so you just kind of feel desperate. Well, yeah, it's a desperate times. And so you say, was there anybody that still knew Yahweh and worshipped him rightly? And the answer is yes. There were little pockets of people that knew the word of God, that were obeying the word of God, that were just living out their normal lives, despite the politics around them, despite the warfare around them, whatever, they just woke up every day and did the next right thing. And we have a little snapshot of that normality recorded for us in the book of Ruth. So while the book of Judges is happening, you have this little carved out little Thomas Kincaid painting. Have you ever seen those Thomas Kincaid paintings? There's always like this little house, there's this like raging storm and like snow and darkness. And then there's this little house, little fireplace and just looks a little cozy. That's the book of Ruth. And everything else is the book of Judges. And so what we learn is that in a little closed system of godly obedience, you can be faithful to God, despite the disobedience and moral chaos that's happening around you, like a biosphere, like the church, just like us. I mean, when you read the news, don't you sometimes feel a little desperate? Just, you just kind of want to throw your hands up, like, how? How much worse can it get? Some of you who are older, you might have thought that way 10, 15 years ago, and then this happened. <laughs> you know, then the millennials started running things. <laughs> I mean, the legalization of killing unborn babies, epidemic of addictions, the normalization of people living together before marriage, the popularization of homosexuality, the absurd pandering to the minority transgender ideology, the widespread institutionalization of these strange and aberrant views, the resurgence of Marxism and socialism, the, the stuff that our forefathers had to deal with in that darkness is now being popularized by the next generation. I mean, I could go on ad nauseum. You, you just kind of want to say, what is going on out there? <laughs> Has nobody been reading history books? Has nobody been reading science books? Has nobody been reading the Bible? Is there anyone who's 
still following the Lord? What is normal these days? What should be normal? What's the standard? Well, friends, the book of Ruth is for you. The book of Ruth is just going to give us that snapshot of normality, that standard of this is what life could look like. So that we can model our church after that. Because the church is the safe place, although even now in some churches, pastors are allowing the contamination of these aberrant worldviews and ideologies to infiltrate their own preaching and into the pews. So it's with great relief that we find in the days of, that the judges ruled Israel, the book of Ruth, as a snapshot of godly, obedient normality. Now, although it's difficult to pinpoint exactly when these things happened, um, we can narrow it down. We can narrow it down from this fact. The book ends by telling us that Ruth... Now, I'm going to give a major spoiler alert here, okay? If you don't want to know the cool twist at the end in the last verse, just block your ears. Good idea. Ruth is the great-grandma of King David. So in the days when there was no king in Israel, nobody was doing the will of God through a leader, God was at work preparing his chosen king. And the real spoiler is that the son of David ends up saving the world. And this is all starting in this little microcosm of normality. Matthew chapter 1 verse 5 says, Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David the king. Now, while that is kind of the coolest part of the book, it's also, it provides us with the greatest challenge of the book. And um, I had read the book of Ruth many, many times, even translated in Hebrew, without ever stopping to pause, that what I just told you is not really possible. I mean, think about it. If this is happening in the days of the judges, and Boaz is the son of Salmon and Rahab, remember who Rahab is? She was the lady that helped the, uh, the spies by hiding them, Joshua's spies on the way in. So the beginning of the conquest, when Jericho fell, the very first thing that happens in the conquest of the land after the 40 years is that Jericho falls. That's where Rahab's from. And at the end of the book, you have King David. Well, his grandfather is born, Obed. So now you've got the space of the judges, which is about you know, 340 to 360 years. So, what to do with this? Well, I spent many hours uh, this week and, and got Will roped in as well to do research. And so many man hours went into this. And the, the final answer is, I don't know. But there's a couple of options. One is, you know, one suggestion is that the Rahab mentioned there isn't the Rahab from Jericho. I don't, I don't like that one. That doesn't seem to make sense. Um, well, none of them make perfect sense. But the other option is that... Um, there are gaps in the genealogy. So Matthew just leaves a gap there when he says, Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab, there's, and then Boaz is the father of Obed, by Ruth, there's actually, there's, between Salmon and Boaz, there's actually multiple generations. That's not impossible, because we do see Matthew do that in other places in his genealogy quite on purpose and quite obviously, where he'll leave out three generations at a time. We know that because you can compare his with 
Luke's genealogy, and you can compare theirs with the one in First Chronicles, around chapter 32, I think it is. And as you compare all those, you realize Matthew's leaving out chunks at a time because he's trying to get the symmetry of 14 generations, 14 and 14. And he actually says that. He says that he does that in his gospel. So I'm a little bit comfortable with putting gaps in there. That's one solution. The other solution is that if all of these men had their children, fathered their children in their old age, you could get, you could get all the generations, you could get five generations in 360 years. And that's not unlikely either, I mean, it's not impossible either, because if you think about it, Ruth marries, um, you know, there's Malon and Kilion and Ruth and Orpah, and they get married, but there's no children for that 10 years. They're married for 10 years in Moab, there's no children. So it seems as if maybe Ruth can't have children, because in those days you get married, you start making babies. That's like the whole point of getting married, right, in those days. So she is probably barren, which just like Hannah, just like Sarah, just like, um, her, uh, not Rebecca, um, um, Rachel, thank you. Uh, just like Rachel, a lot of the important women in Scripture are barren, and then their child born, Elizabeth as well, uh, in circumstances that show that God is involved. So that makes sense, because Naomi, when, she, when Ruth finally has a child, Naomi says, in my old age you have given me this descendant. So it is possible that if... Salmon meets Rahab when they're young, but they have um, Boaz when they're old. And Boaz is old when he meets Ruth, which makes perfect sense because Boaz is constantly calling her, well, he calls her twice young, this young woman. And, and it's, she, it seems to be this big thing that this old man is marrying this young woman there. Um, so if he has Obed when he's old... And let's say Obed has Jesse when he's old, and Jesse has David when he's old, which is possible because he has like all these other sons. He has 12 sons, you know, whatever, like in between, eight sons. Um, it is possible to fit them in there. Old means 100. Okay, let's move on. Um, if they were all around 100 when they had babies. But okay, it, the point is um, that... We're going to just trust that the Bible's true and know that it worked out and, and trust that the genealogy given is the main point and not how it got put there together. Okay, I tentatively would like to put Ruth on the timeline happening after the days of Ehud, you know, the left-handed James Bond uh, character who kills Eglon, the Moabite king, after Ehud and before Gideon because there's a, there's a famine that happens um, that drives... Elimelech out of the land, and that famine could be what uh, Judges 6 describes as when the Midianites would come and would drive out, take all the oxen and take all the sheep, and there would be no food for Israel. That could be the famine there. So that would put it around about just before Gideon. Okay. Where it falls, where the book falls in our English Bibles is helpful. That comes from the, the Greek Bible. That's the order that it comes in, although it's different from the Hebrew. And it's helpful because it gives us that respite after reading the 21 chapters of Judges. It's like you've been driving on a dark freeway in the fog and suddenly there's this quaint little B&B &B on the side of the road that you get to pull in for a few chapters uh, before you get on with the story. So Ruth is a huge contrast to Judges. If Exodus is uh, the movie genre of an epic and you know, Deuteronomy is the genre of a, a docudrama, 
Um, Joshua would be a war movie. Judges would probably be, be a chainsaw massacre horror movie. Then Ruth is the chick flick of the Old Testament. And I love chick flicks. You know, when I was in um, college, I minored in drama and film. And um, all the people in the, my drama class were, were unique um, <laughs> people. And you could just tell by looking at their flamboyant clothing and their bohemian lifestyles and their hair and everything. Wonderful people, always very dramatic. And, um, and you would, one of the common questions is, so what's your favorite genre? And every, any genre was okay. And there was like film noir or, you know, I like these obscure French films or whatever it is. Everyone had their own little genre. Even horror genre as your favorite was okay. But for me, the honest answer was, I, I really like rom-coms. I mean, I, I just like them. The romantic comedy, you know, anything with Julia Roberts in it, you know, My Best Friend's Wedding, anything that had Jane Austen write the original script, you know, Emma, Pride and Prejudice, all those kinds of things, Serendipity. I, those are my favorite movies. And so people just pitied me that I was <laughs> not sophisticated enough. But is there anything more satisfying than when Mr. Knightley finally proposes to Emma? There's a reason... My oldest son's middle name is Knightley. I love Jane Austen. Anyway, um, maybe that explains why I love the Book of Ruth. Book of Ruth, there's, there's the, the, uh, you've got in-laws, you've got emotional hype, you've got a love story, you've got a leap year engagement, you've got uh, you know, proposals, and you've got all sorts of intrigue, and there's wheeling and dealing, and, and dealing with the relatives, and all sorts of fun stuff, and it ends. I mean, there's even you know, two funerals and a wedding. It's, it's wonderful, but it's very unlike judges. In this particular way, there's no direct revelation from God. So, so just th think about that for a moment. The judges, they have angels giving God's word. They have visions. They have, you know, the fleece miracles. There's multiple miracles going on. Um, the angel of the Lord will appear to Samson's parents. And guess how many visions, dreams, revelations, they are on Ruth. Zero. Nothing. Guess how many miracles happen in the book of Ruth? Nada. And that's significant, because remember, this is a snapshot of normality. And when you're reading the Bible, you're reading like one miracle after another after another, but you don't realize this spans thousands of years that have been compacted into all the highlights. It's like if you watch the five-minute highlight reel of any football game, it looks really exciting. But when you watch the four-hour version, I'm like, why do Americans torture themselves like this? All they're doing is measuring stuff all the time and re-looking at the playback. I'm like, just catch the last five minutes where it's all compacted, and then it's an exciting game, right? Well, that's, that's kind of like what the Old Testament is like. It's all those highlights of the amazing ways that God acted. And so if you are reading this without realizing what's happening, you as a Christian might start feeling like, how come I don't hear from God in this way? How come I don't see miracles? Isn't this normal just to have God speaking to you and guiding you with direct revelation? Isn't it normal that, to see people being healed and, and having their loved ones raised from the dead? Isn't that normal? No! That's special. It's actually called special revelation. The general revelation is what we have. And the special revelation that we have is the Bible. And so that's what last week's Sunday morning sermon was on. Remember that? Second Peter chapter 1, where 
Peter says, yes, I heard the audible voice of God in the Mount of Transfiguration, and I saw the majestic glory, and we have something more sure. We have the Word of God more fully confirmed. More sure than seeing and hearing the voice of God and the glory of God with your own eyes and your own ears is a Bible. And that's what we see in the book of Ruth. John Piper comments about this. Ruth is a story for people who wonder where God is when there are no dreams or visions or prophets. It's for people who wonder where God is when one tragedy after another attacks their faith. It's a story of people who wonder whether a life of integrity in tough times is worth it. And it's a story of people who can't imagine that anything great could ever come of their ordinary lives of faith. It gives us a glimpse of the hidden work of God during the worst of times. That's the book of Ruth. It's a snapshot of normal, ordinary people living their everyday lives to the glory of God with God's sovereignty involved in everything that they're doing. And what Ruth's going to do is it's going to teach you to see the involvement of God in your life without the spectacular visions and miracles and supernatural ways. We're just going to see the sovereignty of God worked out, how it worked out in their lives. And it's a little more obvious for us that it's working out that way in their lives. And then we're going to see, oh, wait a minute, that's how it works out in my life. These are people, bad things happen to them, good things happen to them. They make plans and decisions. They work. They farm, they wheel and deal, they eat, drink, sleep, party, and marry, and there's no cockroaches. They worry about the economy, they fear food shortages, they deal with loneliness and goodbyes, and without any word from God. And yet, these are people that know their Bibles, as we shall see over and over. Which brings us to the third point, the people. The people, where we, from these people, half the book of Ruth is dialogue. And in the dialogue, you see references to God all the time. Unlike the book of Judges, in the book of Ruth, the people know the word of God and are doing not what's right in their eyes, but what's right in God's eyes. Look at verse 2. For the people, the, the name of the man was Elimelech, that means my God is king. And the name of his wife, Naomi, which means pleasant. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion, which kind of together means um, weak and sickly. I think we'll, we'll look into that a bit more. They were Ephrathites of Bethlehem and Judah, and they went into the country of Moab, and they remained there. So let's meet Naomi. Naomi is actually the main character of the book, not Ruth. That might be surprising to you. Naomi is the main human character. This is about her life. Um, she's also known as Mara. She changes her name to Mara. She doesn't want to be called Pleasant because life has dealt bitterly with her. Well, actually, because God has dealt bitterly with her. So she changed the name to Mara, which means bitter. The family is introduced as the Ephrathites. Now, the Ephrathites are an interesting little detail there that they're... Uh, Caleb, remember Caleb? Caleb and Joshua? Caleb's wife's name is Ephratha. She's the only one mentioned in the Bible. And one of her descendants is a guy called Selma, who is described in First Chronicles as the father of Bethlehem. And in Micah, Bethlehem is called Bethlehem Ephrathah. And the book of Ruth makes a big deal about the fact that Boaz was an, was an Ephrathite 
just like Elimelech was an Ephrathite. So put all that together, and what we realize is the word Ephrathite was a, a clan, a well-known, significant, influential family in Israel that hailed from Bethlehem. It actually founded Bethlehem. It would be like the founding, it would be like William Penn's family in Pennsylvania, probably. I don't know if he ever lived in, it was called Pennsylvania then. But anyway, it would be like that. It would be like George Washington living in, in Washington, D.C. You know, it's the, the Ephrathite family living in Bethlehem was a big deal. We would describe it this way. They were old money. They were established. They were well-known and influential. We see um, Naomi say, I was full when I left here, and I became empty there in Moab. I was once at a wedding, and I actually heard I actually heard this come out of someone's mouth. It was a, it was one of, a big fancy wedding. A movie producer's um, son was a friend of mine, so I was invited. So there were you know, millions and millions of dollars spent on this wedding. And uh, I heard this phrase at the table, oh, are you from the Louisville Jacksons or the Boston Jacksons? And I thought that only happened in novels, but that happened in California at a wedding. Um, that apparently there's Louisville Jacksons and then there's Boston Jacksons and one of them's from the right side of the town. I didn't, I didn't know. I didn't hear the answer. But that's, that's the sense you get here. This is, Elimelech is, he's from the, the Ephrathite Elimelechs, or whatever, you know, the, the, the Bethlehem Ephrathites. So that's him. Now we meet Boaz. Boaz is our main talker in this. So half the book is dialogue. Half the dialogue is Boaz. And so the narrator is going to great lengths to show what kind of man Boaz is and how his speech is infused with godliness and references to scripture. In Ruth 2, if you just look there, chapter 2, verse 1, now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz, which means strength. And Ruth, the Moabite, said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go, my daughter. And she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to a part of the field that was belonging to Boaz of the clan of Elimelech. It's repeated over and over. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. Yes, we know that, but this is important. That's why they keep saying that. And he said to the reapers, Yahweh be with you. And they answered, Yahweh bless you. So uh, already the first time you hear him speak, the first word he says is Yahweh. Like this is a man who is godly. That's how he's painted for us here. He knows enough about Leviticus 19 verse 9 um, to allow his men to leave the gleanings in the field for those who are poor. That's Ruth. Um, and he shows knowledge of scripture in various ways, which we'll see. Okay, let's move on. Uh, let's meet Ruth. In verse 4, the two sons took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth. Now, this has no relevance to anything, but I just find it interesting, so I'm going to share it with you, that Oprah Winfrey is named after this lady. And the story is that her mom wrote Orpah on the birth certificate and spelt it wrong. And so she became Oprah. But the mom wanted to name her Orpah. Like I say, not relevant. But anyway, um, what is relevant is that Orpah and Ruth are Moabites. Houston, we have a problem. Are Israelites allowed to marry Moabites? No, they are the enemy. The Moabite king Eglon is the guy that just got assassinated by the judge 
Ehud, in order to liberate the Israelites from the Moabites. And now we have an Israelite from a very influential clan leaving the promised land to go and join the Moabites, the enemies. And so we're going to look at that under immigrating to tragedy next week. All you have to know for now is that this marriage should have been taboo. The only way to fix it is if these women become Israelites and they become followers of Yahweh. And if you know anything about the story of Ruth, you know that she does. Orpah doesn't, but Ruth does. And we will see that in weeks to come as well. So for now, we're going we're gonna to leave that for, for there. We're going to leave that there for now. And uh, we will get back to that. What I do want to leave you with is prepare yourself in this book to learn how to see God's working in your life, to see how God prepares what you need before you even ask for it often, where he's already working that by the time the need arises, he's already started providing that. And just learn that when things go wrong, there's always the outside management that's watching carefully over us. So in Biosphere 2, I told you I'd tell you a little bit more about what happened with Biosphere 2. Um, during the two years they were there, the eight people who were in Biosphere 2 encountered certain problems. The humming, hummingbirds died. So the crop pollination wasn't working the way it should. Um, the condensation on the glass made the desert area too moist, so that threw the ecosystem out a little bit. The trees didn't grow properly because, as it turns out, trees need the stress that threatens them um, through strong winds in order to produce what they need to grow strong to make good wood. Um, that's an interesting lesson. Um, there was a species of ant that was introduced to aerate the soil, but there was already an ant in the soil that they, they didn't see that was unintentionally sealed in the system. And that ant was mean and wiped out all the others, um, that species. And the most pesky problem of all was, guess what? Yeah, the cockroaches. Okay, if you ever do a biosphere, just leave the cockroaches out and see what happens. But no, they put in these three beneficial cockroaches and they flourished like a plague in the place and really made life miserable. And no matter what they did, they couldn't control the cockroach population. Um, just like in Biosphere 1, by the way, the Earth. Um, okay, and so what we learned from the biosphere is that sometimes there, as much as you feel in control of your little system, you can't, you can't solve the problems because the problems are already inside. And with us, our major problem is sin. And we can keep our church as safe as possible, and you can keep your family as safe as possible, and you can isolate yourself as much as possible, but the sin is already in the camp. The cockroach is already in there. And that sin is going to spread in your life. And so you need a savior. And praise God that the book of Ruth is going to tell us that God was working on the savior that's going to save you from your sins since before the foundation of the world. And that's what we're going to learn in the book of Ruth. So come back next week and we'll see that play out. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we're thankful for the snapshot of normality that you have given us in the book of Ruth. What a delightful story of people that love you and obey you and even though they go through tragedy you were there with them to restore them and to fill them up i do pray lord that you would help us to share the gospel this week that we would uh, repent of our sins that we would embrace the forgiveness in our savior and that we would share that knowledge with others we pray all these things in christ's name amen